meant the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning we continue our journey in the book of First Peter, where God is helping give us fresh 2020 vision of the gospel, the basics. And this morning, the passage you just heard read takes a turn in terms of what does the gospel look like in how it's lived out in an unbelieving, non-Christian society. I think that's some basics that we could use help with this morning. I think so. As we try to navigate our world and what does it look like to be someone who lives the gospel when many of our neighbors, when much of our society doesn't understand what the gospel is really about. And if we look, starting again at verse 12, if you remember last week, we said that verses 11 and 12 are sort of a bridge section in this chapter. They relate to what has gone on before, and they introduce what's coming. So we looked at verse 11 last week to wrap up what had gone on before, and now we're starting in verse 12 for this week. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and I think it's a little bit more of an updated New Living than the one that's on the screen, so there's a couple variants. Um, the verse 12 reads, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Now we've already talked about how the, the church that Peter is addressing is experiencing persecution. And we start to see in this part of the chapter that one of the primary ways they're experiencing persecution is through people's slander of them. The church is being accused of things. And the early church was accused of a lot. One of the things they were accused of was cannibalism because of the sacrament we're going to partake in this morning. Because people heard talk of them eating the body and drinking the blood, and that was so bizarre. And so the pagan society around them and the Romans began to accuse them of being cannibals. There were all kinds of nasty things that were said about the church. And this morning, can I just remind us that the church has always been a target for slander? Always. And we see this today. Um, it's blowing my mind how often it makes headlines when there's a small COVID outbreak in a church compared to larger gatherings that have taken place that don't get any mention when there has to be opportunity for COVID to spread. But people are always looking, an unbelieving world is always looking for things they can accuse the church of. It's just part and parcel to who we are and to our experience together as God's people. And I want to encourage you this morning that it's always been that way. Nothing's changed. We're not living at a time where suddenly we're peculiar because we might hear people talking badly about Christianity or about the church. That has always been. So we're in good company this morning. If you feel like people might slander your Christian faith. 
But what's important for us to grasp is not only that this has always happened, but that part of living out the gospel is specifically in how we respond to this. How do we as Christians respond when people slander the church? He says that we're to be careful to live properly and behave honorably. In the eyes of those unbelieving neighbors, whenever possible, so that we prove them wrong. The instruction is not to defend ourselves. The instruction is not to stick our stakes in the ground and make a big statement. It's prove them wrong by how you live. And specifically, this is talking about, these aren't words like holy and righteous. They're words of proper and honorable. This is saying that in the eyes of the moral constructs of the society around you, so long as you're not disobeying God's law to do it, that you're to do things that look honorable and proper in their eyes to silence their accusation. That might mean sometimes that we do things that we don't necessarily feel like we have to do. A great example right now is that it would only fuel slander of the church if Christians walk into Walmart and refuse to wear a mask and make a big stink about how it's my right and my freedom. Now, obviously, people have medical conditions. They shouldn't. They can't. I'm not trying to go there. But I'm saying for me, if I go into Walmart when I have no medical reason why I can't wear a mask, and I make a big stink about how it is my freedom in Christ to, to be in Walmart and not wear a mask, God doesn't tell me I have to wear a mask, I am doing nothing that is honorable and proper that would that would stamp out people's slander of Christians if I do that as a pastor in the community, right? It's just a, an example I can come up with in current events. It's not a right-wrong issue. It's not a sin to wear a mask or not to wear a mask. But it's proper and honorable in the eyes of society because of our current circumstances. And so God is saying through Peter, look, when people are slandering you as a church, that should just mean you bend over backwards to prove to them that you're not deserving of that slander. Be careful to live properly and honorably. And look at the reason why. God promises that when we do that, one day, that will come back in those very people honoring God. And this takes an ultimate perspective. The literal language is um, the day of his visitation. Part of the reason that I'm preaching from the New Living this morning is that it does some of the interpretation for us today. And so the NLT just goes ahead and words it that it's when he judges the world. At the end, if not before, our proper and honorable behavior will be part of the reason that people then honor God. Because they're going to realize they were wrong. Because we proved them wrong. Because we didn't stir up their slander. So ultimately, why do we do this? It's for the sake of witness and the glory of God. That we behave properly and honorably among our unbelieving neighbors. 
Now look at verses 13 to 14. It says, For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king is head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Now, the verb in verse 13 is what sets all of this passage up. It's the primary verb that other verbs fall under. And um, I saw that the old NLT had respect instead of submit. I'm glad they changed it back to submit because that's the word and there's a difference. But it's for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. Now again, let's remember the context. The people that are originally receiving this letter are under oppressive authority. And the instruction is that for the sake of the Lord, they're to submit to that authority. For the Lord's sake. See, the primary way that we live properly and honorably is through submission. It's putting ourselves under. It's laying down our rights. And all human authority is corrupt. And that's not under question here. It's evident that it's corrupt. In the situation this was originally written to, and in any situation anywhere, we know that human authority, apart from the guidance and filling of the Holy Spirit, is corrupt. It's the whole reason why God was never intending for Israel to have a king, right? Back in the day of the Old Testament, because God wanted to be their king. He knew that when humans are put in that position of authority, that it becomes corrupted. But in spite of the corruption, we're to submit knowing that it's there. Because even corrupt authority is better than the chaos that would ensue if there were none. Right? And even in a corrupt authority and corrupt society, there's things about authority that keep society functioning to some extent. There's some sort of order that enables it to move forward. And this base level of morality allows society to function. And it comes through corrupt human authority. And because we're wanting to live honorably and properly, that we might win people over to the Lord, that we might prove them wrong, we submit to that authority. And we do it for the sake of witness. We submit to God by submitting to human authority. Not because the human authority deserves our submission, but because God does. And for the sake of our witness, he asks that we submit. Now this is never a submission that would compromise our holiness. We only obey the laws of the land when they don't contradict the laws of God. But it is a submission that might compromise our rights. That's a hard statement. I'm going to say it again. This is the word of the Lord gave me. The submission to human authority will never compromise our holiness. We cannot go there. If human authority asks us to do things that go against the gospel, that go against Jesus, that go against his character, then we do not submit. We stand. But it is a submission that may cost some rights. And we're going to see that in this passage play out. It's a hard passage. We look at verses 15 to 17. It says, It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. 
It's God's will that you do this because it will silence the slander. It will silence the accusations. Verse 16, for you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. See, we have to remember, we talked about this around the 4th of July, that true freedom is actually enslavement to God. That freedom is not autonomy. Freedom is not really independence, it's dependence. And so even though we have been set free, we are still enslaved to God himself, and that means that we are also enslaved to his will. And his will is that we submit so that we silence the slander of his name and of his church that would come if he didn't. And it means that we're not free to respond to slander in a fleshy and evil way. Because it would be tempting to do so. My goodness, I see a lot of people in the name of Jesus getting fleshy and evil on social media. Defending the church against accusation and slander. Defending what they think is right. We're not allowed to respond in that way. Because we're a slave to God in his will. Verse 17, I love the way that this plays out and how we live honorably toward these different entities. Respect everyone. Blanket statement. If they slander you, if they persecute you, if they believe differently than you, if they do things that are wrong, doesn't matter. Have respect for everyone because they're people who are made in the image of God. And you're to bring them respect. Now, for the family of believers, for the brethren, we're to love. There's a deeper, deeper level of intimacy and commitment there. We're to fear God or reverence God. Him and Him alone do we fear. And then we're to respect the King. The same thing we give to everyone is what we give to human authority. We offer our respect. And this would have been a really difficult thing for Christians to figure out. I know that we think that we have a lot of issues that it's hard to figure out what the, how, what the Christian way to look at it is. It's always been that way. If you lived in the Roman Empire where the emperor was viewed as divine, do you salute or do you not? At what point does it become idolatry and at what point is it respect? People in the, the world around thought Christians were crazy because they would keep the laws that a lot of the regular citizens didn't keep, but they refused to burn incense to the emperor, which would have been the equivalent of like a salute because they knew it was associated with idolatry and worship of the emperor as a god. So how do you both respect the king and not blur the line into being part and parcel of worship of the king? You see, things were difficult. It was not easy. They were only to fear God. They were to respect the king. They were to submit to authorities, but they weren't allowed to blur the lines on their holiness and their loyalty to God. You see that we've always lived here in this tension. Things are not easy when it comes to discerning how we interact with the society around us and remain faithful. But we're to respect everyone. We're to love the family. We're to fear God and God alone. 
Moving on to verse 18. Now we have instructions that are specifically for Christian slaves. And this makes sense because they would be the ultimate example of suffering through submission to human authority. Right? Verse 18, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Now hear this. this these kinds of passages in the New Testament have been abused in history. This is not a support or a condoning of the corrupt system of slavery. In the same way that nothing we've read was support of the corruption that was taking place in the government of the day. It's not a support of the system, but it is instructions for those who are stuck within it. And what it looks like to live honorably and properly in a way that would be a witness to their owners, to those they were in that position under. It was putting their salvation ahead of their own rights. This was instruction for people who weren't in a position of power. They were in the position of power being wielded against them. And this is how they're to respond to that. There's a difference between that and being the person who's in the position of power and seeing someone being treated unjustly and standing by and doing nothing. Right? At that point, we, we skip over to the parable of the Good Samaritan. At that point, when someone else is the victim of injustice and you are the person of means and power, you step in and you fix it. But if you find yourself in a position that is unable to fix it, that is under that oppressive power, God says to submit. With all respect. And it brings suffering. says in verse 19, for God is pleased. Again in verse 20, if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. That when God sees that his people are willing to submit even when it hurts, to endure patiently for the sake of proving people wrong, and the negative things that they believe about Christians and about their God, that God is pleased. And that's our goal, is his pleasure over and above our comfort. Or is it? This is hard. Like, I've struggled with this text. Look at verse 21. If I were to say there was a theme verse of this chapter, this is it. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Do good. 
Darren and I have been um, on a real Boy Meets World, Girl Meets World kick. So my generation, Boy Meets World was like our thing, and then Girl Meets World came out several years ago, and it's on Disney Plus. And so anyway, we, we've binged, because there's like nothing on TV that we want to watch now. So, so we binged all of Boy Meets World, and now we've been watching Girl Meets World. And, um, there's a scene at the very end of Boy Meets World, which is all about these four students, three students, and their relationship with this one teacher, who miraculously is their teacher from kindergarten through college, right? Um, and so in the in the last scene, they're all adults, and they go back to their elementary desks with this teacher they journeyed with for their entire lives, and now they're going to be adults moving out into the world. And they ask him what his final lesson is for them, and he tells them, do good. And the straight-A perfectionist of the group says, don't you mean do well? And he's like, no, I don't mean do well. I mean do good. And God calls his people to do good. The good deeds that he has prepared in advance for us to do, the good that will be proper and honorable in the eyes of society around us, even if it's corrupt and they don't treat us well when we do what is good. He calls us to do good, and even if that brings suffering, when we do that, we are following his example. The word that's used here, for example, is an unusual word. It's a very specific word. It's a word for, you know how when you're in kindergarten and you're learning to write, they give you those sheets that have the letters already written and you have to trace over them? That was a thing back when, when this was written. And the word example is that word. It's the idea that Jesus has given you this exact pattern that when you do good, they crucify you. When you do good, you suffer. And we're to follow his example. And we're to do good, knowing that it brings suffering. And that's what it means to be Christ-like. And then this phrase, you must follow in his steps. This is the only place where this, this phrase occurs. And it's been quoted and used. It was how the WWJD movement even got started from the book In His Steps that was written. It was all about doing what Jesus would do. Here's the thing, though, friends. This phrase is talking about his steps of suffering. You do good and you suffer. You submit and you suffer. And when you do that, you are walking in his steps and it is pleasing to God the Father. That's what it is to be Christ-like. Here's the thing. This is an awkward message to preach, I think, because it's really awkward in the culture and context and everything about how I've been raised and what it means to have the American dream and all of it. It's awkward for me. But what if we have missed something in our vision of the gospel? What if it's not 2020 because we have lost this peace that is when you do good, you will suffer and that's okay. And you submit to it because you're following in the steps of the suffering servant. Look at verses 22 and 23. What did Jesus do when he suffered? He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God. 
who always judges fairly. That's the letter we're to trace. Those are the steps we're to follow in. We are not to do any sin or have any deceit in us that would bring about slander and suffering. They told us earlier that if we're getting beaten for doing something wrong, God has no pleasure in that. We can't bring on the slander by wrongdoing. We can't bring on the suffering by wrongdoing. But when that suffering comes, we cannot retaliate. It is not an eye for an eye as those who follow Jesus. We cannot threaten revenge. It's not ours to take. But instead, we leave our case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. In my desire to have my rights and freedoms, have I missed part of the gospel? What it means to be like Jesus. And then friends, we submit to the Lord by submitting to authority and submitting to suffering because we have a whole lot of debt of gratitude that we offer back to him. Because why did he suffer unjustly? Why did he endure? Why did he not retaliate? He did it for this reason. Verse 24, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. Can I answer when it was his right to send all of us to hell because we had so grievously offended him? So that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Friends, I don't know what kind of circumstances you might find yourself in where this is relevant for you. I pray that we never are experiencing the kind of persecution that many in the early church did. I don't want us to have to go through that. But in whatever situations you find yourself in where you have a choice that you can either be the silent sufferer that will submit and take that submissive spirit knowing that it pleases the Lord, or you can choose to retaliate against, to take vengeance into your own hands, can I please encourage you to trace the letter in your mind? What did Jesus do? He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't retaliate. He didn't take vengeance into his own hands. He trusted God with justice, that God would bring it about. And when we do that, we please him, and we somehow join him in his suffering. There's union in that story. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. So this morning as we approach the Lord's table together, 
do want to remind you again of that instruction in verse 17 about loving the family of believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're not going to read it, but Paul gives very, very strong warnings that there's not to be any division among the body whenever we approach the table. That we can't take it in an improper and an unholy way. And specifically, it's in that context of we come to him as a family together to this table, and we need to be right with each other. So I want to encourage you this morning to take some time um, to pray. If anybody still needs to grab elements from the back or the front, you can do that. But let's be sure that our hearts are right with the Lord and with each other before we have partake of this means of grace together this morning. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in mercy gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, accept our praise and beseech you. We thank you for your love, for the gift of your Son, for the sacrifice he made in our behalf. For the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of our hearts. For the present witness of your Holy Spirit to our hearts that we are your children. Grant that as we receive this bread and juice in memory of Christ's death and suffering, in communion with you and with your children, we may be made partakers of his body and blood who on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, Preserve your soul and body unto everlasting life. Take 
and eat this, remembering that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your soul and body unto everlasting life. Drink this, remembering that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Jesus died for me, that on the cross he shed his blood, and now he sets me free. I too believe, I will believe that he died for me, that on the cross he shed his blood, and now he sets me free. Praise God, I'm saved. Praise God, I'm saved. All's well, all's well. He sets me free. Praise God, I'm saved. Praise God, I'm saved. All's well, all's well. He sets me I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me, that on the cross he shed his blood, and now he said, 